Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. This is a great time to be a man, really for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is because this morning in Men's Fraternity, I like this particular series of the year, or season of the year, because we're in the process of finally constructing what I hope will be a compelling and motivating definition of manhood for you. This is the beginning of that process. We're going to lay the footings today. And uh, hopefully out of the next uh, four or five weeks, you're going to receive a definition of manhood that motivates you and can motivate you for the rest of your life. Be kind of my kind of manhood that you can pass on to your sons with real energy and enthusiasm. So I'm excited that we're at this time of the year to be able to construct that kind of definition. And I'm also excited to be at this time of the year because it's Super Bowl week, right? Isn't that great? It's Super Bowl week. And men all over America just beside themselves. You know, I heard the story of a young guy who had always wanted to go to the Super Bowl and had been unable to do that. And he worked at it and he worked at it. And he finally, after all those years of desperately trying to get a ticket, finally got a ticket to the Super Bowl. So he got to the game and he's excited about being at the game. He wasn't real excited about his seat though. It was in the third deck on the last row, stuffed in the end zone. But he was still glad to be there. And as the game went into the second quarter, he had his binoculars because the players looked like ants from that perch. But he noticed as he was looking through his binoculars, an empty seat down on the 50-yard line. He couldn't believe it. So as the game went on, nobody sat in that seat. So he got up out of his seat and worked his way down, all the way down, and finally got to that row and worked his way along the row. And there was an older gentleman sitting there, and he turned to the guy and he said, you mind if I sit here? The old man said, no, go ahead and have a seat. So he sat down and when he sat down in the seat, there he was 18 rows up from the playing field right behind one of the team's benches at the Super Bowl. He turned to the old guy and he says, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm here in this seat. This is incredible. The old man turned to him. He said, well, that seat actually belonged to my wife. She was the love of my life. For 20 years, Every year, we sat in these seats for the Super Bowl, but she died. Boy, the guy's heart just sang. He said, man, I am, I am really sorry. And uh, so after making a few condolences, they went ahead and watched the game for a while. And then as the game went on, he finally turned to the older guy and he said, you know, if you don't mind me asking, I'm just curious. He said, man, this is a great seat. This must have cost a fortune. Uh, why didn't you get somebody, a friend or a relative to to join you for the game. And the old man said, well, that's easy. They're all at the funeral. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of truth nestled in that little story, isn't there? <laughs> Well, guys, it's so good to be with you. It really is. This is a great time of year. And uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be turning the clock back. 
we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of time. And what we want to do is go back to the kind of original blueprints of life. And we want to unroll those scrolls and look at those blueprints that have to do with the construction of masculinity. And we're going to go all the way back to a book that's called Beginnings. Uh, we know it as the book of Genesis. And though you don't have a Bible with you today, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be putting these verses on the screen so that we can look at them. But what we want to do is, is kind of investigate in an original way things that you hear about. Oftentimes guys hear about what they're supposed to be out of the Bible, but they don't go back and do the original research for themselves. So we're going to be an original researcher, looking at the original blueprints of Genesis and what it says about masculinity. Now, what we're going to do primarily is focus on the first three chapters this morning of the book of Genesis. But I want you to know, if we were to go back there together, if we were sitting around a table and we were turning to those first uh, three chapters, we would be turning to more than just a story. In fact, if I could say it this way, we would be turning, in fact, to a gigantic myth that cast its huge shadow, its mountainous shadow over all the rest of human history. In fact, uh, no three chapters in the Bible so dominate the rest of the scripture as these first three chapters in the book of Genesis. Now, you probably were a little taken back when I used the word myth, weren't you? Because you're probably saying, no, is, is that because he didn't believe that's true? No, absolutely not. I, I do believe that it's true. But here's what I want you to know. Look at letter A on your outline. I want you to know myth is not necessarily synonymous with fiction. Let me give you the Webster's de definition of myth. I think it'll be helpful to you and helpful to us in the rest of our time here together. Webster's defines a myth as this. Any real, you see it, there it is, right at the beginning. Any real or fictitious story that appeals to the consciousness of people by embodying ideals or realities. In other words, there are things, situations, stories, people that by the way they lived or by the circumstance that happened, it in an unusual and remarkable way encapsulates all that there is to know about a particular subject. And from that point on, everybody looks back at that myth to measure themselves against. And these first three chapters in the book of Genesis are a lot like that. Genesis embodies in a remarkable way a number of the ideals and realities about life, and in particular about manhood and about masculinity. It serves as a... As a as a capsule of all these remarkable truths that we can draw on when we are constructing for ourselves a path to authentic manhood. Secondly, a real myth explains and measures our reality. You want to hear a real myth? A real myth? Abraham Lincoln. That's a real myth. Abraham Lincoln as a president is mythic in the sense that he sets the curve for all other presidents. Oftentimes when you hear us talking about presidents, you hear a guy say, man, I wish we had a, a president like Abraham Lincoln. Now there was a president. There was a guy of courage. There was more than a politician. This guy was a 
uh, a spokesman for the noble things of life. He exhibited courage and valor. He set the curve on presidents. He becomes the measuring rod against which so often we measure all other presidents. How about Paul Bear Bryant? Oh, now there's a coach if there ever was one. You know, in Alabama, football and Bear Bryant are the same word. If you go to Tuscaloosa, there's this huge shadow that's cast over Alabama football by a guy who's long since dead. Every team and every coach in the state of Alabama is measured and explained in terms of Paul Bear Bryant. Isn't that right? You'll hear of guys, if you've ever gone to a game with Alabama fans, say, well, that team, that team plays like the Bears team, or that's a player the Bear would like to have playing on his team or he's not any kind of coach near the bear. I mean, he's the standard. He embodies the ideals and the realities of what a coach is supposed to be. This week, when you watch the Super Bowl, when the game's over, they're going to hand the Super Bowl trophy to a team with the name of another myth on it. Vince Lombardi. Have you ever been in Green Bay? Can you imagine if you were the new coach of the Green Bay Packers? You'd get there in Green Bay and you'd get up in the morning and you'd have to drive down Vince Lombardi Avenue. And then you'd have to hang a right right there at the Vince Lombardi Middle School. And then you'd have to pass Vince Lombardi Library in order just to get to the stadium. Now, would that be intimidating or what? That's because Vince Lombardi in Green Bay is a myth. Not bigger than life, that's not what a myth necessarily is, but a measurement of life against which all other ideals and realities are measured. That's what I mean when I use the word myth. Look at letter C. The myth of Genesis explains and measures manhood. It's the mountain. When you talk about what does it mean to be a man, we go to the mountain we go to Genesis because it measures manhood, both in its original ideals and also in its ongoing fallenness. Everything, guys, that you would ever want to know about masculinity, at least in seed form, is found in the book of Genesis in these first three chapters. So I believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a real historical event that summarizes the beginnings of life on planet Earth, but it's even more importantly, everything later found in the Bible about, listen, men, about women, about social order, social structure, social dysfunction, is measured, explained, or defined by the Genesis myth. It's all here in this one story that will be unfolded for us over the next couple of weeks. And no one can understand life on this planet as it should have been and as it is now. And no one can understand masculinity as it should have been and as it is now without going to the book of Genesis and looking at the clarity that it offers to us. And that's where we'll begin at these footings, at this beginning, in order to begin to construct 
what I hope will be a compelling and motivating definition of manhood for you. Look at letter D. Genesis describes our ancestral roots. Do you remember the miniseries Roots? Powerful miniseries that swept America where Arthur Alex Haley went back to discover who he was. He's a black man in America. But this was not his roots. And so the whole story is him tracing his ancestral heritage back into Africa to his great-great-grandfather, Kunta Kinte. And the reason he did that is because he wanted to know where he came from and what life was like for him originally in his heritage and what happened to him to make him who he was now and what his family was then. Roots. That's what Genesis is. Genesis is, in fact, to gender what Roots was to an African-American. It's a place to discover who men were once and why we are now the way we are now. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is like three different camera lens focus points. Genesis 1 is what I call a wide-angle perspective. A wide-angle perspective of the beginning of life, a broad overview of creation set in seven days, a seven-day summary that includes the creation of man being created on that sixth day. That's what you see when you read Genesis 1, this broad overview of creation. And then when you get into chapter 2, you get into what I call a close-up. You change the focus of your lens and you get in a close-up and you actually replay that sixth day of creation. And now we focus in on the creation of a man and a woman and we get in this close-up a lot of fine details of that account that was just spoken about from a broad perspective in chapter 1. And then when you get to chapter 3, you move into what I call a real tight focus. And that tight focus is on one single event. An event that changed this couple's life and changed their destiny and changed us even here today and changed our masculinity and what it means to be a man and what we need to do in order to reverse the changes that have occurred in this moment. All of that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, what we want to do today and then we want to again do next week and finish up is we want to look in more specifics at each one of these chapters, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. So what we want to do today is take a look, first of all, at Genesis 1 and what it says about manhood. And there are a number of things that it says. First, it speaks of male and female value. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. We'll put it on the screen. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now just look at that just for a moment because we're going to make three observations. Here's the first. Unlike the rest of creation, 
man is singled out alone to bear the image and the likeness of God. That's what makes him more than just part of God's creation in this moment. By God saying what he just said, that makes him the crown of God's creation. He alone bears the image of God. He has a consciousness that the rest of creation doesn't have. He has a will and a self-determination that the rest of creation doesn't have. He has a reasoning ability that the rest of creation doesn't have, all because he bears this imago Dei, the image of God across his heart. Secondly, this passage tells us that in this moment, man is split into two halves, male and female, that are equally endowed and equally valuable. The reason I say that is because you don't hear God create uh, this man and a woman and parcel out his image, one piece or one percentage to one and one piece and one percentage to the other. No, they are equally endowed with this image as male and female. And it's this powerful sameness of sharing God's likeness that then cast a shadow over whatever differences they may have as male and female, because whether they're male or female, they're equally endowed and equally valuable because they're equally made in the image of God. And then finally, I want you to notice that they are special and unique to God because of this couple in creation, as you move through creation, you have God saying, let there be light and there was light and let there be animals and there were animals and so on and so forth. But after he creates man, he does something that he didn't do to any of the other parts of his creation. It says that he speaks to them personally, talks with them. And that says something huge because every phrase and every statement in Genesis is important. And as he speaks to them, what you begin to understand is that he's not just a part of the creation that's set in motion with an already predetermined purpose. But he's a part of creation that was created especially to have relationship with the living God. He was created for this personal relationship. And that's what we begin to see unfold as you move into chapter two. So Genesis one speaks of male and female value. It also speaks of male and female calling. Here's what it says in Genesis 1:28. It says, and God blessed this couple. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I just want to mention three things real briefly as you look at that. Take a look at it because there are three commands embedded in this opening statement, this opening blueprint that will get fleshed out now for thousands of years over the rest of scripture. But here it is in germ form, just the seed form. He says, first of all, that to fulfill your humanity as a man, you need to be fruitful and multiply. This speaks to the bearing and releasing of a healthy next generation, healthy children into the world that God had created. He says, subdue the earth, which says that on whatever part of the planet you've been placed, you need to use your creativity and your intellect to bring out the best in that part of the planet. Then he says that you're to rule over the earth 
meaning that you're to be a good steward of the earth and its resources. Now, those are just three simple statements, but guys, let me tell you, I still believe that in those three simple statements is the calling of man. Your calling. And how well you fulfill those three statements has a lot to do, as we'll see later in our quest for authentic manhood, how well you have a sense of meaning and satisfaction to your particular life. Then finally, look at Genesis 1 because it hints at a very important social structure. Look again at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now look at the verse for a minute. Can you see the social structure there? This is a test. Can you see it? What does God call the man and the woman collectively? He calls them man, doesn't he? Now that's interesting. Remember, every word in every phrase in Genesis has rich meaning. This is the mountain. And every reality and every ideal is embodied in every phrase and every nuance of this incredible opening three chapters. And so God creates the male and the female. And he calls them not people, not personhood, not humanity. God purposefully and selectively calls them collectively man. Is that a big deal? <laughs> Absolutely, it's a big deal because Genesis knows what you and I should know, and that is words and titles in particular have significant and powerful meaning. You know, this is also repeated again in Genesis chapter 5 too. It's done in a little bit different way, but just a little later on the same book, this is what it says. And God created them male and female, and He blessed them and he named them man in the day that they were created. Now, you know, our modern age, and we live in a modern age, the 21st century, our modern age would immediately feel a sense of discrimination in those verses, wouldn't we? Don't you feel that? Even today, even as I read those, even as I said that they call the male and female man, didn't you feel kind of, mm, it just didn't feel kind of politically correct, did it? Because it's not. That's why we've changed chairman to chairperson and layman to layperson. That's why I recently heard in one city they changed the manhole covers to the personhole covers. <laughs> That's the world we live in. It's because in our world, sameness and uniformity is the only acceptable direction. And we move those directions and we bring the richness of male and female down on kind of a bland, uniform level. But that's not true in the original blueprints. The original blueprints have something different to say. Here at the beginning, regardless of how we feel, God chooses to call the human race by the term man. And the question is, why? That's the big question here at the start 
of constructing a definition of masculinity. The question is why? And the answer is, and the answer is this. It's the same reason why after a traditional wedding, we call the couple Mr. and Mrs. Ron Wilson, rather than calling the couple Mrs. and Mr. Elizabeth Cole. That's the answer. In these titles, in this ceremony or in this moment, in these titles, a social structure is being hinted at and anticipated for the man and for the woman in the future. A social structure that'll get fleshed out a little bit more in Genesis two and three, a social structure that is still being grappled with as we enter the 21st century. But right here in the original blueprints, you hear that social structure whispered ever so softly when God creates the male and the female and he says, and I call them man. So these are the three wide angle observations that stand out in Genesis about value and calling and social structure. Now what does Genesis chapter two have to tell us about manhood? I think you'll find this even more interesting and maybe even a, more, a little more uncomfortable, but that's okay because we're men, right? And we're on a journey. Here's the first. I want you to notice when you go into chapter two, one of the first things we'll notice as the lens goes from this wide angle view of creation to a little bit more of a close up over this first couple, one of the first things you'll notice as an original researcher is this. Adam was created first. Now in Genesis one, you didn't know that. It just said he created the male and female. But when we go back over this sixth day of creation and get a little more close up, we realize it didn't happen just like that instantaneously. It happened in sequence. <clears throat> and Adam was created first. Here's what it says in Genesis 2:7. Then the Lord formed man. This is the start of it. Formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this man as male became a living being. Now you go, okay, he was created first. Is that really significant? If you've been to the mountain, you know it's significant. Everything at this mythic mountain is significant. God could have created easily both the man and the woman at the same time, couldn't he? Why didn't he? That's the question that's being begged here to any original researcher in the book of Genesis. He could have created them at the same time, brought them into existence with just a spoken word, but he didn't. He didn't do it that way. And the question is why? Is there meaning here? Listen, everything in Genesis has meaning. First always means something, especially in the scriptures you go through it because it speaks of some kind of preeminence of some kind. For instance, when Jesus was asked, what was the first and foremost commandment, he was able to tell them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He could do that. The firstborn son throughout scripture is the son who receives the blessing, the special blessing of his father. In Proverbs 3, 9, it says, honor the Lord from the first of your wealth. 
And first is very significant there. It's to come off the top right at the beginning, not at the end of what's left over. And that's significant. Revelation 2, Jesus speaks to an Ephesians church and he says, you've left your first love. You're doing a lot of things well, but at the core, the most important thing has been forgotten. The first. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits of creation. And we are called as Christians to seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things will be added to you. So if you just took the word first, you get a sense of that priority, don't you? As you go through the scriptures. And in the beginning of man, as male and female, Adam was created first. First. And the question is, why? And I think it's because God was making a statement, another statement, a whisper about social structure, social positioning, and manhood as it should be. Not necessarily as it is. We're in the original blueprints, but as it should be. You know, thousands of years later, now I'm going to bring us up to a real tense social issue. Thousands of years later, in Paul's day, he was asked why women couldn't be pastors of churches. A lot of us ask that same question today as pastors become male and female. But in Paul's day, he was asked the question, why can't a woman be a pastor of a church? The leader. You want to see Paul's answer? Here it is. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created. Then Eve. See, here he was in his day, thousands of years removed from that day, and they were asking him an intensely difficult issue, especially in Ephesus where this was written because Ephesus was a city where in the pagan religions, all the religious leaders were women. And, and these people who had become Christians were wondering why the women couldn't lead this church. And so what he does is he goes back to the myth back to the mountain. And he says, well, here's why I don't think that should happen. Because I think God had some original designs in mind. And he points to this first in creation. Secondly, I want you to notice that Adam in Genesis is given an occupation and responsibility before Eve's creation. Here's what it says in Genesis 2.15. It says, then the Lord God took the man, the male, and put him into the Garden of Eden and cu to cultivate it and keep it. Now, I don't know how much time has passed at this point before God created the woman, but here's what we do know, that God created the man. After he created the man as male, he gave him a job to do, a vocation in this garden. Then he gave him other responsibilities, orders to obey. The whole time, Eve's not created. These are things given to the man exclusively and not to his wife, Eve. And we ask, why? All it does is invite the question, why? It doesn't answer it. It just asks it by the way it's set forth there. But if you look at it long enough, you begin to think, you know, there's, it's almost like there's some kind of leadership training program going on here before Eve comes on the scene. 
And I believe in many ways that that's exactly what's taking place because it hints at something central to and basic about authentic manhood that we'll put in a definition later on. I just want you to see the original blueprints at this point. Thirdly, I want you to notice Adam is instructed by God with the responsibility of leading with his word. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now Eve has still not been created. And at this point, the only Bible there was was the Bible that God spoke, or the Word of God that God spoke literally to Adam. And he's saying, okay, I've given you this place. I want you to cultivate it. Now I want to give you some instruction about how to live in this place. And the thing that's fascinating is, is that this instruction was not given to Eve, but was given to Adam to then give to Eve, which is what we'll see a little later on. But we have to ask the question, why? Why did it occur this way? Again, I believe it hints at the spiritual responsibility that God created men to assume as part of real masculinity, a responsibility that then thousands of years is stated outright in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, when Paul is speaking to men about how to live with their wives. And he says this, husbands, love your wives. I'm just shortening it here to get the essence of it. Love your wives with the word. In other words, a man should lead with spiritual truth when he's in relationship to a woman. He should lead with spiritual truth. Not she should lead, he should lead. And that that's a real key, a real nugget to satisfaction and social health not just for the marriage itself, but for the community at large under the banner and command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not with dysfunctional kids, but with healthy ones. But to do that, someone's got to deposit the truth and be the standard bearer for it. And in the original blueprints, that scepter is given to the man. Fourth, notice that Adam names the animals, which I think again... Any theologian will tell you is a signal of his leadership over creation. It says in Genesis 2:19, these words, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever this man called a living creature, that was his name. Now, naming in the Bible is significant, by the way, because it's a sign of authority or leadership over something. You see, God exercise that kind of leadership in renaming people throughout the Bible. He takes Abram and he renames him Abraham because he's calling him to be a leader, to be the originator of the nation of Israel. God changed Sarai's name to Sarah to show this very same thing. God changed Saul's name to Paul because he wanted him to be a witness of his resurrection to the Gentile world. God changed Simon's name to Peter as a sign of his authority over Peter and his calling into the leadership of the church. And here in Genesis 2, in naming the animals, Adam gets to show his leadership 
over creation. His first level leadership over creation. A responsibility as counterpart, Eve will receive through him. But he receives it first. And then finally, I want you to notice, this is the last thing we'll look at this morning. Notice that Adam is given a helper suitable for him. A title that offers further evidence of God's original core social identity for the man and for the woman. Here's the way it's said in Genesis 2.18. It says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Up to this point, everything that I've told you, Adam's been alone. But at this point, he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, I want you guys to listen real closely. I know some of this is a little uncomfortable. The deepest and most profound differences between a man and a woman, male and female, are not physical. They're intensely sociological. Men and women, since day one, this day, this Genesis day, but what's happening here in Genesis is what you and I as men will feel right now. But what's happening in this day one is a relational dance between these two twin, equally endowed, equally valuable counterparts. There's a relational dance going on. And here's the big question that is at some of the center points of masculinity. If it's a relational dance, then who leads? And who follows? Do you see how relevant Genesis is? Is that not the question of the 21st century in the sociological realms of the everyday life that you as men will feel whether this week you take a girl out on a date or whether you go home to a woman that you married. This world is intensely sociological and there's a relational dance between these two twin counterparts and who leads and who follows. I remember when I was taking Mrs. Hobgood's dancing class back in the seventh grade. One of the first things that I had to learn in this dance was I was supposed to initiate the first step. Some of you young guys who've been through cotillion, other things have felt the same thing. You get in there. If both tried to dance and lead at the same time, what do you get? Chaos and some hurt toes, don't you? That's what you get. And so in this moment in Genesis, here's what I want you to hear. Adam discovered more than a work to do in the garden. He discovered more than a will to obey. He also discovers a social complement who not only will offer him help, great help in his life, but is also looking to him and looking at him to lovingly lead her to fulfillment. And that's what we begin to discover here in Genesis. This is an incredible moment. And God calls her helper. Now, if she's called helper, what does that make the man? 
Well, it doesn't tell us in the passage. We're supposed to assume that. But thousands of years later, as the scriptures roll on, they look at that and they have a term for what the man is. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, but I, and he's speaking to a church. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now what you see in that is, first of all, Christ is not inferior to God. Christ is equal to God. That's the whole wonder of the Trinity. And yet they have a relationship that requires roles and order. And you see it there. And in the midst of explaining that, he also says, and I want you to also know, as I created man and woman in my likeness, I also created relationships and roles and social order. And you need to understand that because men, to understand that is key to your masculinity, at least one of them. So here at the beginning, in this foundational work, what we begin to understand is that there's a woman that's going to be looking at a man and to a man to take the lead to bring about fulfillment in her life. And that's the way it is even to this day because men are called from the very beginning to be social and spiritual leaders, which is at the core of real, authentic masculinity. Now, Genesis has a lot more to say about this and a lot of other things that'll help us formulate the definition of manhood. A lot more. And we'll look at it next week. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.